Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 17th, 2023, a Tuesday. Uh, one of the shows that I've probably referred to most uh, in the more than 10 years that Keenon has been running was a show I did more than 10 years ago, actually, back in 2011 with the culture and political writer Kurt Anderson. He wrote a really interesting piece back then in Vanity Fair about why nothing's changed, uh, fashion, art, music, design, entertainment. He didn't write about politics, but one could certainly throw in politics. Of course, the only thing that has changed over the last 20 or 30 years, it seems, is technology. Otherwise, the world has been frozen in many ways. And we've touched on this theme many times in this show, done many shows on the failure of the various revolutions uh, of Occupy and the Gezi, uh, and, Gezi and Tahrir Square on their failure to change anything. Several times I've had my friend, my Turkish friend, Echer Temelkuren on the show to talk about this. We've also done a lot of shows about the gerontocracy in America, the fact that the politicians are getting older and older on both parties and more and more useless, mostly dying in office. Uh, and I'm thrilled that someone is bringing all this together, in a sense, in a new book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Uh, Vincent Bevins um, is a freelance writer. He's written for the, uh, the Washington Post. Uh, he's based in Brazil, uh, in uh, Sao Paulo, but he's actually talking to us from Pacific Heights, just close to me in San Francisco. Uh, Vincent, congratulations on the new book. Is it a theory of the absence of change or the failure of revolution? Or are those essentially the same things? It is a history built around the idea that some things have changed, but not in the way that was expected or uh, indeed hoped for by the set of people that organized mass protests around the world from 2010 to 2020. So it would actually be less surprising if nothing had happened at all. A lot of what happened in the 2010s is that a huge amount of desire to change and improve the world uh, became evident. But instead of simply failing, often in many cases, things went backwards according to the standards of many street movements that I trace uh, around the globe in that period. Many people have compared the last 20 years to 1848 in Europe, the revolution that never, the revolutions that failed and everything that didn't change. Uh, is 1848 a useful comparison or are there other moments in history where you had all these uprisings and yet nothing changed? Yeah, 1848 is a possible reference point that for this book, I do a quick prehistory of what I call the mass protest decade in the 2010s. I focus a little bit more on 1917, which of course grew out of 1905, 1968, where what changed was not was not what was actually asked for by uh, many of the original organizers in, in Paris. Uh, and then in 1989, where some things did change. So I guess uh, the book looks back to 1999 in Seattle, 1968 in Paris, 1917 in Russia. Uh, and I would have liked to spend more time in 1848, but it is, it is a big part of the story, yeah. Uh, I mentioned the 
gerontocracy in the United States. You're you were born here, you were educated here, now you live in Brazil. Every time you come back, it might seem as if nothing's changed. And actually, the crisis in the Middle East seems similar, what's happening today with Netanyahu and Hamas and the Palestinian authorities. Nothing ever seems to change. Is there a, a political explanation for all this, Vincent? Um, yeah, power. I think that there is a particular set of configurations of power, not only in the Middle East, but globally, that came into, not came into being, that were really cemented at the end of the Cold War. Um, and to the extent to which that was quite good for certain parts of the world, I think we're both in one of them at the beginning. Quite a lot of other parts of the world found out slowly, um, certainly Palestine is an example of, 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 a, of a region where things had not been going well for quite a long time before that. But the configurations of power that came together from 1990 to 2000 have been hard to dislodge. And a lot of what happens in the decade that I analyze in my book is intentional attempts to reshape the global order that end up being far more successful than they expect at getting people onto the streets, that end up creating real opportunities uh, that this particular type of attempt to reshape the global system, the mass protest has a very hard time taking advantage of. So there are configurations of power that very idealistic and uh, well-intentioned movement, movements came up against in part of this book. I mean, really the main idea of this book is talking to 200, 250 people around the world that I interviewed over four years in 12 countries, asking them what they would tell to the next generation as uh, a, a, a younger group of people inevitably, hopefully, I think clearly, will in their own way try to improve the world. Um, so that really means taking on power and being very strategic about the way you do so. We're speaking with Vincent Bevins, the author of an intriguing new book. So uh, always the most obvious books, uh, Vincent, that are the most intriguing. I don't know if anyone's quite written this book that you've written, but it, it needed to be written. You go back to 1917, of course, the reverse was true. Lenin achieved remarkable change through organization. Right. Are you using Lenin, perhaps, in some ways? He's mostly been vilified even on the left over the last hundred years. But are you using him as an example of someone who achieved change through organization? What I do is I trace back the ideological and material prehistory of a particular approach to mass protest approach to political change that really becomes quite hegemonic or indeed sometimes appearing natural in the 2010s. And to understand where that came from, you have to understand that, yes, starting in the early 60s in the United States, but definitely um, when you came to the more anarchist-inspired uh, elements of the anti-globalization movement in the 1990s, you had a group of people that were responding to what they perceived, and not as the failures of Lenin to seize power and change things because they believed that he did, they were responding to his perhaps excessive success. They thought that by being hyper-organized, hyper-disciplined, hyper-focused um, um, on power, that they had that he had created a system which was really just the long-term uh, replication of the Revolutionary Party structure in the in the form of a state. So it was kind of always accepted, even by the most harsh critics of Leninism that Lenin changed things. The idea was, and this became increasingly um, 
trendy, let's say, or at least increasingly attractive in the at the end of the 20th century to try to change things without taking power. This was the, mo the name of a very influential book that inspired groups in Brazil that I read about uh, and many others around the world. And what a lot of them come back to at the end of this long investigation that I have, and I don't want to speak myself because really I try to center what the ways that these 200, 250 people uh, end up expressing overlapping or interesting opinions is they come back to the idea not to go fully back to what whatever 1917 was but to you can't but to the idea that you cannot throw out everything that works just because it might be used in ways that you do not expect that if you really want to change the world you have to use the tools which actually work an organization is a tool which really works planning and strategy are tools that really works. And yes, if you succeed, you might end up doing something bad with the power that you win. But if you're not using the tools that work, uh, then you're not really trying and you abdicate responsibility to the elites that are very happy to hold on to power um, because they like having it and they already uh, enjoy immense privileges from, from, from doing so. What's your reading in, in terms of the book and the people you talk to and indeed your view of the world of, of populism, right-wing populism? It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, We've done some shows, for example, on Steve Bannon and on right-wing populism in America. They're actually very influenced by Lenin and by his focus on the seizure of power. Uh, and ironically, it's the right in America and perhaps in the world that learned the most about power from men like Lenin. Is there any truth in that? Well, I think it's certainly true that, you know, if we go back to the title of that book that I just cited, I don't think the right ever tried to change the world without seeking power. The right always tried to grab power. And one of the lessons of my book is that these particular mass protest explosions that I said were more successful than anticipated putting people on the streets, created opportunities for someone to seize power. And often because these particular protest movements were not constituted in such a way that it allowed them to do so, it was somebody else that seized power. And that was not always the right it was not always necessarily reactionary forces, but it tended to be who was already there, well-organized and willing to do so. And this was something that they watched with great, great horror when a movement of a lot of different individuals coming together for a general set of beliefs in a better world uh, watched a more cynical set of actors simply grabbing the opportunities that had been created by it. Now, let me give me an I, example of that. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the country that I've lived in primarily since 2010 Brazil. Uh, the sort of origin story of this book was that I was living in Sao Paulo working as a foreign correspondent in June 2013, when a group of left-wing uh, leftists and anarchists organized a set of protests to bring down the price of a bus fare in the country. Now, they were very idealistic, both in their long-term goals of trying to make public transportation free for all working class Brazilians, indeed free for everyone. And they were very idealistic in that their, their movement had absolutely no structure, no leaders. It would never speak for anyone. Uh, it would never try to act as a vanguard in relationship to society or anyone at all. Now, what happens is that um, the, organize, the protests that they organize blow up much larger than expected because of a police crackdown. And this is a, a, a dynamic we see uh, recurring throughout the world in the 2010s. A police crackdown causes a huge outpouring of support. But the huge outpouring of support overwhelms the original group. And what you get is slowly more and more different types of people with different ideas about what the protest is, exercising more power in the streets. And ultimately, a week later, after the original uh, group, um, a week after the, the crackdown, which leads to the explosion, Elements that we would now consider to be the beginning of a far right movement in Brazil actually expel the original organizers out of the streets. And then they create a group, not these exact same people, but 
cynical but savvy right-leaning elements, uh, often well-financed by groups in the United States. One of these young Brazilians had been trained under the Koch brothers here in the United States. They formed a new group, which had a name that was intentionally similar to one of the original group because they were trying to steal the thunder, steal the outpouring of sympathy in the country for the original organizers. And they ultimately are successful in doing so. And so there's a lot of different ways to read what happens in Brazil from 2013 to 2018. But it's certainly the case that this one group that didn't believe in seizing power or be, or or leading the streets watched in horror as another group of kids comes in who have no qualms about doing whatever it takes to rise to the top of a street movement, just stealing literally the sympathy that the country has for them. It's Machiavelli versus Gramsci, isn't it? All over again. Well, Gramsci, I mean, so certainly the Gramscian strategy is one that comes up as one of the approaches that a lot of uh, interviewees um, come away from this decade recommending, paying very close attention to who you can form alliances with, how you can form an effective counter hegemonic block, what is the real structure of society, where is power really? Um, but sort of the the fully the, the belief in the fully horizontal, fully structureless uh, anarchist type of idealism behind uh, social movements is one that a lot of people move away from in this decade. Not everyone, but quite a lot of people. Um, Vincent, you're clearly a man of the left, but you're also uh, somebody who went around the world talking to a lot of people about this. Did you ever feel you wanted to shake them a bit and say, look, it's all very well having these ideals of democracy and the, the, the will of the people, but ultimately you've got to make compromises and sometimes even do things that aren't quite morally above board if you're to achieve social change well i understand what you're getting at but no i didn't i didn't want to shake anyone i felt that my role was really just as a journalist to sit and listen with people and the movements that i selected for analysis in this book a lot of them are progressive because a lot of people uh, organized around what became the so-called arab spring or what brazil was were really left of center or inspired by uh, broadly progressive ideals but not everything in the book was i i, I selected all kinds of movements with contradictory ultimate goals. And rather than saying, hey, this is what I think, because I also you know, went through a kind of a transformation when I watched what happened in my own life over the last 10 years, when I watched what happened in Brazil, I thought the best way to look back on this decade was just to let people tell me what they learned from it or what the conclusions that they came to. And yeah, and maybe one way of putting it is that they wish that they could shake their younger selves a bit, but... Uh, I let, I let these people speak for themselves rather than try to put words in their mouths. You're a much fairer man than me, Vincent, but that's probably why you're writing books and I'm running a talk show. Uh, we are talking with Vincent Bevins, the author of We Burn. I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, an excellent quarterly journal of culture and politics. They're doing a great job making sense of our confusing world with wonderful writing. Uh, I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties. And then we'll be back with Vincent. And I want to talk to him specifically about the role of technology and social media in the absence of change. We'll be back in about 32 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. 
Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Vincent Bevins, the author of a, a really intriguing new book. I wish I'd written it. If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Uh, Vincent, uh, old friend of mine is Jeff Jarvis, a tech writer. He, he's been on the show. Uh, he was on the show. He was actually at my house in San Francisco a couple of months ago, talking about his new book on Gutenberg and the role of Gutenberg in political, cultural, and of course, technological transformation. One of the interesting things, though, about Gutenberg and his press was it resulted perhaps in an odd, odd way similar period to ours where there was a great deal of violence and unrest, but no real political change. And of course, the invention of the printing press uh, and the book is in many ways comparable to the invention of the Internet and social media. What was your conclusion in terms of the conversations about the role of technology and particularly social media? in the mass protest decade and the missing revolutions? Yeah, well, I think probably the printing press didn't lead to immediate changes, but I think probably we can attribute a lot of the successes of what ultimately become liberal bourgeois revolutions across Europe to the existence of newspapers, the existence of print journalism. So uh, I think it takes a long time for humanity to adapt to new tools. I mean, one essay that I really like is the Phaedrus in which Plato recounts Socrates saying, writing itself is going to change everything and it's going to be very dangerous and it's going to allow people mm -hmm. to manipulate other people's words. And he was kind of right. But what happened is writing didn't go away. And we spent a very long time learning how to deal with writing, uh, just like it took a while for humanity in Europe and then around the world to deal with the printed word. And I think we're starting to understand what social media and what the internet has come to be versus what we thought it was going to be. And what we thought it was going to be is not the same as what it is. But I think that also what it is is not the same as what it could be. Um, if you remember, I think people my age remember, but people perhaps like 30 and younger don't remember this because it seems so strange now in retrospect, but from 2008 to 2010, 2011, the dominant thinking, especially in English uh, language, liberal media, but really almost all um, of the most mainstream voices around the world was that anything that happens because of the internet is going to be progressive and democratic and sort of push humanity towards you know a glorious future. Ironically, people believe that whatever their idea was of the glorious future. A decade later, people tend to think the exact opposite. If a bunch of people are rushing on a, a country's capital because of something they saw on the internet, they usually will think, well, oh, this could maybe perhaps be dangerous. And so I think back then in 2010, there was an overemphasis on social media as what was driving a lot of these mass protest uh, movements around the world. At the same time, I think that you probably wouldn't have got them in the form that we did without social media. I mean, to get so many people to come together on the streets that you end up dislodging or fundamentally destabilizing a government, which is the criterion that I have for inclusion in my book, you need to have many causes. You need to have economic, ideological, media uh, causes. And I think social media is one of the things that gets us over the line in many of these cases, one of the things that makes it ultimately um, possible to get this many people on the streets at once. But that doesn't mean I think that it was fundamentally about social media in many cases. And I certainly don't think that social media necessarily helped, uh, was a facilitator in a way that brought positive results for a lot of the things that came together around the world. Often social media made it very, very easy to get people together without them knowing exactly why they were coming together. And then this caused strange 
um, either confusion or as I described in Brazil, people coming together because they had different ideas about what the protest was because they had never met each other. They were not organized through some kind of intentional process of building movements that you would have, like you would have seen, for example, back in the 50s and 60s with the Black Civil Rights Movement. You had just sort of people all on the streets because of what they saw online. And this sometimes led to confusion, sometimes to outright clashes. So I think we need to be cognizant of the ways that social media was part of the story, but also that social media doesn't need to operate the way that it has for so has so far. I mean, we're only 13 years in, probably there's going to be some kind of social media for the next 500,000 years. Um, I think we're allowed to think very hard about how social media is constituted, who are the powerful men that are running it for their own uh, business or ideological interests, and whether or not that really serves humanity in the long term. And what about the role of what some critics back then called slacktivism? The idea is very easy to be a radical online and approve revolutionary messages. It's quite another thing to go out on the street and risk your life. I think that there is a an element uh, in which the slacktivist critique is correct, that people thought people thought and still think sometimes that they're doing something by posting that reading the internet, getting mad at the internet, and then posting back at the internet about how mad you are at the internet is politics. This is not right. This is not how societies change. But it is also the case, as I said, that I think social media had something to do with the amount of people that did take the streets and actually risk their lives in so many countries around the world. I mean, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but from 2010 to 2020, as far as we can tell, uh, more people participated in mass protests than at any other point in human history. So people were taking risks. People were getting out on the streets. People were taking action. Uh, but the particular ways in which they were, I think, was not quite aligned with the long-term goals. And the whole point of this book is trying to help to study what happened in a way which will allow for a better alignment in the future. And what about, in retrospect, given what has happened over the last few years, given the Russian invasion of Ukraine, given what's happening now in the Middle East. Is there any significance to the fact that some of the most prominent failed revolutions that you write about in your book were in the Ukraine, of course, in Cairo, even in Iran and Turkey? So one of the things that comes up across the decade, and, and it's not all the same, there are, there are cases which are more or less successes. South Korea, I think, is a real success. Chile is a moderate success. Um, but one thing that does come up across this decade is when you get these many people in the streets, this unexpected surge of humanity that dislodges existing power structures or fundamentally destabilizes existing governments enough that they're either afraid, uh, they'll be willing to do something to hold on to power, or they're very weakened. What often happens is, as we discussed, the people that are willing to rush into that vacuum and take power are the ones that end up shaping the final outcome. So this could be local elites, but we also saw many, many times from 2010 to 2020 that in this situation, this idealist mass of people is shocked to find that some external actor gets involved and either invades, uh, picks local elites, uh, starts to intervene in some direct or indirect way or another. Um, and this starts, you know, in 2011 with uh, early episodes in the in what is called the Arab Spring by international media. It certainly happens in Ukraine. It happens uh, in a more subtle way in Brazil. It happens throughout the decade. And this is something that was not anticipated, but it is the unexpected success that allows for co-optation and uh, yeah, Machiavellian or even imperialist forces to realize, oh, I can use the so-called Arab Spring to launch uh, a, a bombing campaign in Libya. Uh, Saudi Arabia can march over the bridge into Bahrain and crush a movement. Uh, 
Ukraine, obviously, we're still dealing with the long-term results of all of the ways that that became an international conflagration uh, right away. And I think this is something that comes up as an unexpected weakness of this particular type of attempt to change the world. Do you talk at all in the book or do you, did you talk to any of the, the people you talked to about Syria as being the ultimate nightmare of, of, of how this whole thing ended up in the way in which uh, the Syrian uprising, I think, took place a little bit after the Egyptian uprising. And it, became, a little bit. it became clear to the Syrian, the, uh, the, 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 the Assad regime in Syria, that to survive this revolution, it required an enormous reaction, a bloody reaction. In other words, these the, these mass protests change the nature of traditional authoritarian regimes. Yeah, I think a few things happens. One is the initial apparent success of the Egyptian revolution in 2011, right. in January 25th and 28th. What really happens is the Egyptian military refuses to um, uh, follow orders from Mubarak. Mubarak loses power. When the, when the military won't do what you say, you're no longer the leader of the country. And the, the military essentially takes over. Then what you get in Libya... With the support, uh, tacit at least, of the Americans. Well, at the time, many, many people uh, well, many, many people in the square th saw this as a progressive step forward. The military is refusing to fire on the people. Mubarak is gone. Mubarak, a long-term ally of the United States. Initially, the United States doesn't really know what to do. Soon after, NATO does decide what they're going to do. They bomb Libya and Gaddafi is not only deposed, he is executed, tortured and executed live on YouTube. Now, someone like Assad in Syria and many, many other people around the world mm. can look to that and think, okay, either that might happen to me or I'm going to have to crack down uh, with full force. And in the case of Syria, because of the particular configurations of the Syrian state and the ways that the secu Syrian security forces remained loyal to Assad, he decided to simply repress um, what the beginning of an uprising and it became a civil war very quickly. I end up not considering that actually a mass protest event, but it is certainly one that would not have taken the particular shape that it didn't, that it did, excuse me, without um, different people learning in different ways from what happened in Egypt and in, and in Libya. And, you know, uh, this comes up, uh, it's related to the title of the book, which comes ultimately from Hong Kong. But, you know, this, this, this theme runs throughout the book. Some people write on the walls of Syria in 2011, it's either Assad or we burn the country. Because the people that really mattered, the people with the guns in Syria chose to stick with Assad. You got a nice review. Congratulations in the New York Times. Always hard to get a, a, a review in the New York Times. And as it happens, your book was was reviewed um, with Robert Kaplan's book, The Loom of Time. Kaplan was on the show, actually, six okay. weeks ago. And he has a very different reading of history to you. Right. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. Please, but, no, please tell me. Well, he basically, um, and I asked him, can there be liberty in the greater Middle East without democracy and he suggested that Singapore offers a, a palatable and that's my word not his I'm not sure whether he'd be comfortable with that a palatable political model for countries lying between the Mediterranean and China in other words Kaplan I think is is much more conservative certainly than people you talk to and I'm guessing to you 
and we suggest that all this talk of revolution is childish and unrealistic and that the Singapore model of revolution from above, a technocratic model, is the best one for uh, the peoples living between Turkey and China. How would you respond? And I, I don't want to put words into Clapton's mouth, but how would you respond to that kind of argument? Yeah, so I'll set aside whether or not it's actually what he believes. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Singapore. It is a very small and very rich corner of Southeast Asia, which is more of a city than a country. Uh, if you can replicate that level of wealth that Singapore has, often people will put up with some level of authoritarianism. Uh, if it was easy to turn every uh, <laughs> large global South country into a tiny, very rich country allied with the most powerful countries on earth, that would be a different question. What I come back to in 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 the that question that's at the top of that uh, double review, can the Middle East have democracy, is not the question of Singapore, which emerged from a very, very strange and I think specific set of conditions in the Cold War, are the, uh, the countries of Israel and Saudi Arabia. Now, in the Cold War, the United States started to support both Israel and Saudi Arabia because they were afraid of a left-leaning Egypt, which was trying to unite the Arab world under something called Arab socialism. There was, a, there was indeed authoritarian features to the Egyptian uh, government, but Saudi Arabia and Israel end up becoming cornerstones of U.S. power, cornerstones of the actual configuration of power in the Arab world, in the Middle East, because of this particular dynamic in uh, the Cold War. Now, in order to understand what actually happens in Egypt and who starts to work behind the scenes to dislodge this, this quest for true Egyptian democracy, one must understand that real Egyptian democracy would necessarily challenge both Saudi and Israeli power in the region. It would be very difficult to have an, an Egyptian democracy, Egypt being the most uh, the most populous uh, country in the Arab world, without the people pushing for some kind of a, a, a pro-Palestinian position on the international front. And if you had a progressive democracy in Egypt, what's the point of Saudi Arabia, a reactionary monarchy, which is repressing its people, uh, executing journalists uh, around the world? So I think the geopolitical question, the very strange configuration of power that we get in the con con uh, the contemporary Middle East as a result of anti-Soviet, anti-Egyptian alliances back in the Cold War is just as important for understanding why democracy has been difficult to achieve uh, in the Middle East as other readings. And this is one that I'm not now attributing to Kaplan, but they do exist. Racist or Orientalist readings that, that imply that somehow Muslims or Arabs uh, just don't like democracy. I think that there have been real pushes for it, and they ru they run up against the actual configuration. Right. And in all power. fairness to uh, Robert Kaplan, he, he may be conservative, but he's not that conservative. No, no, I'm not. I'm not describing those those yeah, opinions. I mean, him, but, but, but they do they do they do pop up. I, I'm also curious. Obviously, you most of the people you spoke to are progressives. We did a show last year with a Brookings analyst called Shadi Hamid. Yeah. His basic argument, and again, I'm sure you're familiar, it's an interesting argument, is that America misunderstood the rebellion and it needed to come to terms with the, I guess, revolutionary or disruptive nature of the Muslim Brotherhood. What's your analysis of this in terms of traditional movements like the Brotherhood mm -hmm. in the mass protest decade, especially in the rebellion against Mubarak in Egypt? Well, what a lot of, uh, so just again, so some of the people in the in the book that I talk, speak to are, we would easily consider right of center, especially in Ukraine, especially in Hong Kong. And I do not sort of 
decide who counts as a as a real protester based on my own uh, inclinations. Yeah. Um, but in the case of the Egyptian left, which really is at the uh, an important um, part of what becomes the January 25th and January 28th uprisings in Cairo, what a lot of them say now, looking back, is in the square, in Tahrir Square, which is this inspiring, wondrous, um, revolutionary ball of energy, if we looked back, the left was not quite as organized as the Muslim Brotherhood or the military. And it is ultimately the Muslim Brotherhood that wins the first election, and then the military, which crushes the Morsi government uh, when, they, when it decides it is in its interest to do so. So this kind of general rubric for interpreting what happens, which is who's most organized before the explosion does best, I think does hold in the Egyptian context. And some, some Egyptian progressives will say, well, we needed to form some kind of an alliance. If we weren't going to be an actual excuse me, absolute majority of power in the country. We had to form some kind of an alliance with progressive elements of the Muslim Brotherhood. There was a possible, perhaps, coalition of the progressive secular uh, candidate and a ex-Muslim Brotherhood candidate uh, that could have perhaps won the 2012 uh, election if they had come together. There was perhaps, if you think about it in an entirely different way, a way to approach uh, more progressive elements of the military, which would support more progressive secular elements. So it's all about looking back and saying, what are the organized forces? How can they come together to create a real state which can not only govern the country, but push the push forward progress in the way that we envision it? Finally, Vincent, um, you had some nice reviews. Uh, Mother Jones said this book will change how you think about protests forever. How did it change how you thought about protests forever? How, you're, you're someone who clearly wants political change, as I do. Maybe we don't agree about everything, but clearly we're at a time of horrible paralysis of one kind or another. What, did, what can and should we learn from, from your book about how to actually achieve change? You've talked a little bit about more organization. What else can we learn from your book? Yeah, and I think that, I don't know whether we agree on everything. I think there is a pretty widespread desire to improve this global system. Uh, it's going to take a lot of getting together and figuring out exactly what we want to get it done. But, it, you know, I don't think it's controversial to say that people are a little bit tired of this particular global order and really want to create something better. Um, one thing that I learned, um, one failure that I think I made and a lot of other journalists made um, when covering these protests up close and, and especially in Brazil was to forget that the struggle continues after the big explosion. There was, I think, kind of a deep belief, especially among people in the English speaking North Atlantic, that somehow things just get better if you get enough people into the streets behind the right cause, you don't really have to think about the theory of change. You don't really have to think about what this actually, how this actually forces the people in power to give up power or to change to change course. And so it's a, it's not a new lesson. It's not an easy one. It's you know a tale as old as time that the fight goes on and that actually everything is not wrapped up in one day. But I think it's one that we sort of forgot in the era after the Cold War, and especially in the area of the era of techno-optimism, often in, uh, informed by sort of deep libertarian or anarchist assumptions. And finally, finally, everyone's going to be watching this and thinking, well, that's all very well, all via theoretical, we go back to our Gramsci or our Lenin. But what about what individuals can do? We all want change, but we don't quite know how to do it. Should we be joining organizations? Should we be yeah. starting <laughs> substacks? Should we be 
throwing bombs in the street? What, what are we supposed to do? I think it would be joining organizations. I think that given that the struggle never ends, given that uh, we all want a better world, there's no better way to spend our time than to find other human beings, connect with them, and form the bonds that allow for us to work truly collectively and 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 and, and work, do the hard work of building a better world. I mean, if you really are in that kind of a... If you're really on that kind of a mission, no matter how hard it is, I think it's just as meaningful as any other way you can spend your life. And to find other people, organize with them and, and get together and decide what you really want to do together, I think is the best you can ever do, whether or not it's an organization which is a long-term radical political goal or it's, you know, defense of your neighborhood or, or you know, a, a, any kind of uh, way to reconnect with other human beings in this very atomized and individualized post-pandemic society. And ideally in person rather than online? I think so. Yeah, I think that helps. I think we are, whether we like it or not, material beings.